Well, there are a lot of perspectives um, in America about hell, isn't there? And um, I got to tell you, um, I really don't feel much like preaching on hell today. Um, What I do feel like doing is introducing to you all my new granddaughter, all right? Yeah. This is Audrey Marie Jane Boltinghouse, and so she was, uh, she, had, she had an emergency delivery Friday morning, she uh, weighed in at 3 pounds and 15 ounces and 17 inches long, and um, so that's, I could, I could show you 25 minutes worth of these pictures <laughs> But some of you might think that's hell. So anyway, but not to me, all right? Because she's the most beautiful girl that's ever been born, of course, right? I mean, you know, ever. Uh, so, so it's, and there was, there was quite a bit of drama uh, Friday morning uh, surrounding her birth. Uh, she's well and growing, and she's going to need to put on uh, some weight before she leaves the hospital uh, uh, our daughter-in-law, Ablaza, is doing well, and so we're just very grateful. We really, really are. Uh, and part of the joy for me has been watching uh, my son, whom I love, um, feel love for his daughter. And so that was just a couple of hours after she was uh, born. And... Uh, uh, yeah, that's what I've been feeling. Okay, the joy of watching my son feel love for his daughter. And, and then, you know, realizing that that kind of love comes from heaven, from our heavenly Father, who is, who is the very definition of love. Um, um, so why is there hell? That's, that, that's a fair question. You know, if God is a God of love... Um, why is there hell? And uh, some Americans really have a hard time with the idea of eternal suffering for sins. Uh, now, some Americans don't have problems with the idea of Hitler or child molesters suffering. You know, but what about my Buddhist friend? Or what about my um, Muslim friend? Or what about my secular moral friend who? doesn't believe that there's God, but who pays their taxes and, you know, takes care of, you know, my newspaper and mail when I'm on vacation, and they're good, uh, but, but they don't believe in Jesus. I mean, they're going to hell? You know, how judgmental? How intolerant? How offensive? And when Christians, and especially those born and bred... Uh, from the wholesome farmland of the Midwest, when Christians hear this, we kind of get caught flat-footed, don't we? We're not sure what to say. We kind of get that deer-in-the-headlight glare, and, and then we begin to wonder, okay, well, how do you reconcile a loving God with hell? How does that work, you know? That's a fair question. 
And I think to begin this conversation, it would be helpful to consider an event in John chapter 6, where after the feeding of the 5,000, Jesus said, John 6.53, he said, I am the bread of life. Whoever feeds on me will live forever. And then later on, he said, you know, if not, if you don't feed on me, you have no life in you. John 6.53. And when the crowds heard that, they pushed back. They said, this is a hard teaching. Who can accept this? And then Jesus responded by saying, and here's the question. Does this offend you? Does this offend you? Great question. Regarding how? Does this offend you? So there's a question behind that question, right? Which is, why does this offend you? Why do you find the idea of hell so offensive? Well, it, it, it offends my view of God. It's not consistent with my view of God as a God of love. Okay, okay, let's probe that. Let's probe that. Could it be that your point of view has something to do with where you are located culturally? Could it be that your point of view has something to do that with the fact that you're an American living in a very American culture? In his book, Habits of the Heart, which is, I think, one of the better books out there which properly analyzes American culture, Robert Bella describes American culture as one insistent on expressive individualism. Expressive individualism. In other words, woven into the fabric of American culture is the belief that each person ought to be able to come to his or her own religious beliefs and values independently. Independently. Independently of a sacred text. Independently of uh, a religious authority or the church. Independently. Uh, American expressive individualism. Asserting that the opinionated self is the arbiter of truth. Now that's a shift from the ancients. Whereas in ancient times, it was merely a given that truth and morality and reality existed outside oneself, and thus the path of wisdom would be to conform my desires to that reality. Today, we do just the opposite. Today, we try to conform reality to our desires. So the question is this, do you seek to conform your life to reality and morality and truth that exist outside yourself? Or do you seek to conform reality and morality and truth to fit your desires? You see? You see the difference? Tim Keller put it this way. Instead of trying to shape our desires to fit reality, we now seek to shape reality to fit our desires. And that very point of view, that very perspective shows up uh, in decisions by the Supreme Court. And so, for instance, we would read this on page 2 of the 103-page 
decision that was rendered Friday by the Supreme Court concerning marriage changed understandings of marriage are characteristic of a nation where new dimensions of freedom become apparent to new generations. Do you see that? American expressive individualism. That way of thinking is what's driving that. America's expressive individualism asserts the opinionated self as the arbiter of truth. So then, of course, the idea of a God from on high who has prepared a place called hell, some Americans would find that very offensive. But it's because of their expressive individualistic point of view. And if you don't understand that, you're going to be talking past each other when you discuss hell. Here's a good question. If you find hell offensive, why aren't you offended by the idea of a forgiving God? Isn't it because of your cultural location? (laughs) See? Uh, Whereas Western Americans find hell offensive, but forgiveness appealing, other cultures are just the opposite. Whereas we find forgiveness displayed in Charleston something beautiful, you know there are other cultures that would say, well, that's insane. That's offensive. In other words, other cultures adore the very aspects of of Christianity that Westerners abhor, while at the same time they abhor other aspects that Western Americans adore. So my question is this, should Western culture rooted in white Northern Europe be the final court to judge if Christianity is valid? Is is Western culture so superior that it should be the final court to judge whether Christianity is true? As opposed to the expressive individualism grounded in the American self, biblical Christianity has a completely different point of view. Biblical Christianity has a supernatural orientation. Biblical Christianity holds divine revelation as the arbiter of truth. Biblical Christianity claims the transcendent truth of God, which means that at some point it's going to butt heads with every culture. Every culture. And thus Isaiah 55 verse 8 For my thoughts are not your thoughts, neither are your ways my ways, declares the Lord. And perhaps it's this point where we find Christianity offensive to America's expressive individualism, the doctrine of hell. Now to be clear, here's what we teach at Windsor Road regarding the doctrine of hell. Of hell. It's in our church's statement of faith. Let me review it. At physical death, the believer enters immediately into eternal conscious fellowship with the Lord and awaits the resurrection of his body to everlasting glory and blessing. Those who have responded to Jesus Christ with saving faith will receive the eternal life in heaven they have already been promised, while others will live under eternal judgment in hell. Therefore, because eternal issues are at stake, there is a critical need to communicate the gospel. Now, we've come to this position because that's what Jesus taught. Jesus taught more about hell than anybody else in the Bible. And furthermore, 
all of Scripture is about Jesus. Jesus himself said that. Luke chapter 24, verse 27 says, And beginning with Moses and all the prophets, he interpreted to them in all the Scriptures the things concerning himself. So the important question is this. What does hell teach us about Jesus? What does hell teach us about Jesus? And there is a parable that will help us answer that question. It is the parable of the rich man and Lazarus. Found in Luke chapter 16, verses 19 to 31. If you have your Bibles, I'd ask you to turn to the New Testament book of Luke. Chapter 16, verses 19 to 31. You'll find that on page 876 of your church Bibles. There was a rich man who was clothed in purple and fine linen and who feasted sumptuously every day. And at his gate was laid a poor man named Lazarus covered with sores who desired to be fed with what fell from the rich man's table. Moreover, even the dogs came and licked his sores. The poor man died and was carried by the angels to Abraham's side. The rich man also died and was buried, and in Hades, being in torment, he lifted up his eyes and saw Abraham far off and Lazarus at his side. And he called out, Father Abraham, have mercy on me, and send Lazarus to dip the end of his finger in water and cool my tongue, for I am in anguish in this flame. But Abraham said, Child, Remember that you in your lifetime received your good things and Lazarus in like manner bad things, but now he is comforted here and you are in anguish. And besides all this, between us and you, a great chasm has been fixed in order that those who would pass from here to you may not be able and none may cross from there to us. And he said, then I beg you, Father, to send him to my father's house, for I have five brothers so that he may warn them, lest they also come into this place of torment. But Abraham said, they have Moses and the prophets. Let them hear them. And he said, no, Father Abraham. But if someone goes to them from the dead, they will repent. He said to them, if they do not hear Moses and the prophets, neither will they be convinced if someone should rise from the dead. This is God's word. Now, this parable is typical uh, of Luke's gospel in which two people are portrayed opposites. Here, you have a poor man and a rich man. The poor man died and went to heaven. Abraham's side or Abraham's bosom. The rich man died and went to Hades, hell. Not because he was rich, but because he didn't know why he was rich. And this is the only parable where characters are given proper names. Lazarus. A name which means God helps. And then there's Rich Man. What was his name? That is his name. Rich Man. See, his entire identity and sense of significance and worth and well-being was wrapped up in his stuff and his wealth. 
Both died. Lazarus was so poor, no burials mentioned, probably a mass grave. Rich man was buried with full services. Now, culturally, verse 23 should read, and from hell, Lazarus, and in heaven, rich man. Culturally. And here's why. Most Jews in the first century assumed a link between sin and suffering. So if you had wealth, it's because God was pleased with you. Why else would you have it? And this attitude shows up in the Old Testament book of Job with Job's friends. They just assume that because Job is suffering, it's because he sinned. If A, then B. And so if you're impoverished, you've messed up. You've sinned. They just assume this. But in verse 22 of this parable, Christ turns the story on its head. So it was that the beggar died and was carried by the angels to Abraham's side or Abraham's bosom, meaning the most honored place at the banquet seat in the house. The rich man also died and was buried, and being in torments in Hades, he lifted up his eyes and saw Abraham from afar off and Lazarus in his bosom. And here's what Jesus teaches us about hell in this parable. It's the one truth that I want you to get from our time together here this morning about hell. Here it is, and it will help you in your conversations with those who really ask about how can there be a loving God and hell? Here it is. I can't say it any better than C.S. Lewis said it. Hell is a door locked from the inside. Hell is a door locked from the inside. Now, why do I say that? Because that's what's going on here in this parable. See, what's not going on is this. What's not going on is rich man saying, Abraham, I'm really sorry. And then Abraham is saying, too late. Too bad, so sad. Some people, you know, think that once in hell, people just sort of, you know, wake up and smell the coffee and they repent and, you know, they're banging uh, to be let out. Let me out, let me out. And God is mean and cruel and standing on the lid saying, no, burn. That's not what's happening. In verse 24, rich man says, Father Abraham. Notice he plays the family card. Father Abraham. So family was everything in the Middle East. And so rich man appeals to Abraham as a family member. He shared the heritage of Abraham. So, so rich man wasn't an atheist by any means, but he certainly lived like one. The word never got into his heart. He doesn't want out. He doesn't even want out. He says, look, Father Abraham, now that Lazarus' condition has improved and he's up and about, I'd like some room service. See to it that he gets me some water and hurry up about it. I got some cotton mouth going on here. I need some help. Unbelievable. He doesn't apologize. Rich man doesn't even speak to Lazarus. He sees him. He calls him by name. He knows who he is, but he won't even address him. And why? Because Lazarus is an untouchable. And people like rich man, they don't touch untouchables. He demands service from the very man he refused to help. Rich man still thinks he's in charge. (laughs) And then in verses 27 and 28, you know, he wants Abraham to send Lazarus as an errand boy. Again, no apologies, no repentance. Go warn my brothers. Go warn my brothers, because obviously they were around the banquet table too, and the implication is, you know, if he had more information, give them more information, 
Because if I'd had more information, I wouldn't be here blame casting. Abraham says in verse 29, they have Moses and the prophets. Let them hear them. You know, faith comes by hearing and hearing the word of God. And if they will just get off their banquet cushion and go to the synagogue on the Sabbath, they'll hear God's word. But rich man, he's not used to being told no. So he tries again. He corrects Abraham. No, verse 30. But if someone goes to them from the dead, so to the very end, rich man wants Lazarus to do his bidding. Rich man to the very end thinks he's in charge. Do you see what's going on here? At Celebrate Recovery, the word is denial. Denial. And that's what hell is full of. And this is so important to remember. And here's why. About four years ago, there was a book that was published called Love Wins. And in the author's own words, at the heart of This love wins perspective is the belief that given enough time, everybody will turn to God and find themselves in the joy and peace of God's presence. The love of God will melt every hard heart and even the most depraved sinners will eventually give up their resistance and turn to God. And my question is, what's the truth source behind that thought? See, that that Thought does not exist in the Bible. The picture that we have is the God who has given us Moses and the prophets. The picture we have is the God who wants none to perish. The picture we have is the Apostle Paul who in Romans chapter 9 wishes that he could go to hell if it meant that fellow Hebrews could be in heaven. And the picture we have of hell by Jesus' own words is one where a certain rich man saw Lazarus enjoying a banquet at Abraham's side, yet none of it changed his attitude whatsoever. Who rich man was in this life, the trajectory became permanently fixed in the next. It's like when you develop a photograph. As long as that photo stays in the developing solution, it changes. But once it's put in the stop bath, it becomes fixed. If hell didn't change rich man's mind, whatever made him think a resurrection would change his brother's mind. Verse 31. If they do not listen to Moses and the prophets... They will not be convinced even if someone rises from the dead. The doors of hell are locked from the inside. God is a God of love. And God loves us and he desires our love in return. And true love can be invited but not coerced. It can be elicited but not programmed. And expressive individualism means that some may freely choose to resist God to the very end. And because God is love, he respects that. And he gives them over to that. He gives them up to that. Romans 1.28 And since they did not see fit to acknowledge God, God gave them up to a debased mind to do what ought not to be done. The last thing you want God to do is to 
is to give you up. <laughs> it's amazing, though, the extent that some people go to avoid God. They avoid his influence. They, they see a beautiful sunset. They witness spectacular vistas of nature. And with each view, the Holy Spirit whispers, I'm real. Seek me. Look to me. But no, they avoid it. They avoid spiritual conversations. They avoid kind and loving Christians. They avoid nudges from a loving Heavenly Father. And this sort of thing goes on for decades. And so after decades, after years and years of saying, God, stay away, God says, okay. You know, your whole life you've spent wanting distance from me. That's clearly evident by the way you've lived and the decisions that you've made. And so from now on, I'm just going to give you what you want. I'm going to give you an eternity what you've wanted most in this life. So I won't nudge you anymore. I won't bother you anymore. I would be the last person to impose on you for eternity what you haven't wanted from me on earth. And so from now on, I won't hassle you. I won't bother you. I won't love you. You will never see my face. Ever. And so C.S. Lewis says there are really two kinds of people. Those who say to God, thy will be done. And those to whom God says in the end, thy will be done. The doors of hell are locked on the inside. And someone might ask, well, why would someone choose that? Well, why would a spoiled child choose to miss playtime and supper time and dessert time when he could say he's sorry and be friends? There is a stubbornness that insists on its own way even at the price of misery. And that's why Christian philosopher Dallas Willard once wrote, Hell is God's best for some people. If on earth you try to avoid God, what makes you think you're going to want to be with Him for all eternity? Oh, and by the way, what is it you want God to do anyway? Wipe out your past? Offer forgiveness? He has! That's the point of the cross! See, Jesus was talking about himself in verse 31 uh, when he was talking about someone rising from the dead, which shows the extent of God's love. You see, if you take away hell, if there's no hell, then what's the meaning of the cross? What's the meaning of salvation? What is it we're being saved from? Well, you know, the, the cross meant that Jesus was just a really good example. Okay, well, let's think about that for a minute. Okay, so let's say you and Jesus, you're jogging down Windsor Road. Traffic is passing you. You're talking. You're having a great time getting your miles in. And all is well. It's 7.50 a.m. And traffic is flowing like a river eastbound. And you're running with Jesus and talking. And then out of nowhere, Jesus just flings himself into traffic and gets hit by a car. And dies. What's your response? What's your response? Is your response, oh my, what an example. What a sacrifice. How selfless of him. No. No, your response is, what'd you do that for? Huh? On the other hand, what if on Windsor Road, 
you're running with Jesus and you're goofing off and traffic is heavy at 7.50 in the morning. Jesus says, come on, Randy, be careful now. No, no, I'm okay. And I run backwards and I run sideways and I skip and I do a somersault and a cartwheel and I'm just being silly. Jesus said, no, really, be careful, Randy. I'm serious. But I'm not. And I fall into traffic and Jesus pulls me away, saves me, and he gets hit instead of me. That's selfless sacrifice. To those who say, well, I don't believe in hell because God is love, let me ask you this question. What makes you think God is a God of love? What has your God done to love you? Where have you seen God act in history so that you can say, yes, that that shows God's love? Because everybody in this room knows that if you have ever loved anyone deeply, you have had to suffer. And it costs. And it's about commitment. So, does your view of love include sacrifice and selflessness and commitment? Or is your view of love merely syrupy sentimentality? The only God who claims to have suffered is Jesus. On the cross, he cried, my God, my God, why have you abandoned me? And that is hell. Jesus took hell into himself. So the question isn't, why would God, who is a God of love, have a place called hell? That's not the best question. The best question is, why would God send his own son to hell? And the answer is for you and for me. Out of his love for us. Now, what do you want? If you don't want that, God has nothing else to give you. He gave you his son. If you don't want that, there's nothing more for you from him. Hell is a door locked from the inside. Would you please unlock the door while there's time? Let me close with three questions that you have asked me to address. The first is this. Pastor, what about my Aunt Edna? What about her? She didn't believe in Jesus, but she was good. She was moral. She paid her taxes. What about my Aunt Edna? And behind that question is a belief statement, which goes something like this. I don't think God would send someone who gives a good life to hell just for holding the wrong belief. That's what's behind that question. In other words, we put together a good record, we give it to God, and then he owes us. Or in other words, to say a good person can find God is equal to saying Good behavior is the way to God. You know, what does that say? Well, that basically says that good people can get to God, but bad people can't. All right, well, but what about moral failures? What about them? See, I mean, you're trying to be inclusive, but 
your version of in, inclusivity is really exclusive. Because you can believe that people are saved by goodness or you can believe that people are saved by God's grace, but not both at once. Choose. The gospel says those who know they aren't good enough can find God and those who think they are good can't. The gospel says your past doesn't matter. You can be welcomed and embraced fully and instantly through Christ. Tell that to Aunt Edna. Question number two. Pastor, can I still be happy in heaven if some family members or friends that I love are in hell? Well, again, see, that question assumes that your loved one will just stay the way they are now in hell. But listen, consider this. If in heaven you become more and more like Christ because you desired him, and in hell you become less and less like Christ because you never desired him, I'm thinking of that scene in Lord of the Rings that describes how Smeagol the Hobbit became Gollum the Goblin. And Tom Wright, in his book Surprised by Hope, wrote these words, It is possible for human beings to continue to refuse all whisperings of good news, all glimmers of the true light, all promptings to turn and go the other way, all signposts to the love of God, that after death they come at last by their own effective choice, beings that once were human but now are not. Creatures that have ceased to bear the divine image at all. With the death of that body, they pass not only beyond hope, but also beyond pity. They can no longer reflect their maker in any meaningful sense. They no longer excite in themselves or others the natural sympathy some feel even for the hardened criminal. Christ came. Christ died. Christ rose to prevent that. And then the third question, well, pastor, are you saying then that, you know, a person could just live like a jerk and be cruel and hurtful and mean and then at the end of their life be forgiven and get a free pass into heaven? Well, yeah, the gospel says that. You see, what if that cruel, hurtful person were your own son or daughter or granddaughter? What if he or she had messed up so badly with their lives and then a time came when they were truly broken over what they had done and they came to their senses? Would you forgive them or would you slam the door in their face? Now, if you love, you already know the answer. And God, our Heavenly Father, He is not neutral about people. He doesn't just sit in heaven and say, doesn't matter to me which way they go. No, you know that. There's, a, there's an old hymn with this verse. 
the vilest offender who truly believes that moment a pardon from Jesus receives. And that's gospel news. And here's why. Because the world is not divided up into bad people who deserve hell and then respectable, good, church-going, Midwestern people who have earned their way to heaven. Isaiah 53, 6 says, All we, like sheep, have gone astray. We have turned every one to his own way, and the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. God is still looking. God is still waiting. God is still wanting people to join him. And God is looking for churches who will partner with him in the search for his sons and daughters. We are in the life-saving business church. Amen.